my lovely parent friends, and apparently we are still friends. And on episode 26 of the Teen and Tween Parenting Podcast, my name is Dr. Nikki Naradin, and I am your cruise director in this journey, sometimes tempestuous, sometimes big and bold, sometimes difficult journey that we call parenting. And I am back in Nome. And it's been a really interesting couple of weeks. I think that you've heard from my family mostly. The last couple of weeks had a podcast by my son, my daughter, my husband. I was going to ask my roommate, but we didn't quite figure out how to find the time to do that. But you had kind of lots of understanding about what it might have been like growing up in my house. And hopefully you might take some of the concepts that I bring to you and bring that to your family and see if you can get them talking about it. Maybe you can get them talking about what you're doing and what you might do differently. Either way, I'm hoping that you're learning, that you're growing, and that things are going better. So I'm in Nome, and that flight to Nome is really long. I go from New York to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage, Anchorage to Nome. But the interesting part is that because I've been traveling so much, I actually have accumulated so many miles that I am now a 75K gold member for Alaska Air. And when you've been around for that long and you fly that many miles, all of a sudden you're bumped to first class. Now, I've never been first class. I am a working class girl from the Bronx. I did end up going to medical school. I do have some education but I've never flown first class. And even if I had the money to fly first class, I would never spend the money to fly first class. I couldn't justify in my mind spending that kind of money. But let me tell you on these long flights, flying first class is pretty great. And when I don't get first class now, I'm kind of bummed. I'm a little bit annoyed, somewhat resentful. And then I have to get myself in the mode that I'm actually okay that I have enough room, that I'm safe, that people next to me are all right, that even though I don't get the free drinks, that I will still not die of thirst. So it's just interesting how my perspective has changed so much just because I've been given this first-class status. I'm wondering, wow, can I live a first-class life without even getting first-class status? Can I feel like a first-class person? And I do. So we can live and feel any way we want, whether we're in first class or not, whether people are telling us we're okay or not, we can feel and we can act and we can live like we're first class. So I was just excited about that. And I got back here and everything was fine. I bring all my food with me. Now, the thing about Gnome is that sometimes there's easy travel depending on weather, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes the store has a lot of things in it, and sometimes they don't. So I never assume that the store is going to have the food that I need in order to be okay. So I end up bringing like 150 pounds of food. I mean, I get three free bags with my first class status. Woohoo! It actually, uh, it's like the, the price of being rich goes down. The price of being poor goes up, but the price of being rich goes down. I get all of these little freebies of food on the plane and drinks that I don't have to pay for. And that's because I have a lot of miles at the moment. But anyway, so um, what was I saying? I can't even remember where I was going with this. 
something in relation to food. Oh, so I got three free bags and I have 150 pounds worth of food, which is actually not that easy for me to carry along. So luckily I got a ride back to my apartment and then somebody helped me up the stairs and then I got all my food in the fridge. And so I have all that I need for the month. And when I talk about the things that I need, because I'm vegan and I don't talk about my veganism much on the podcast, um, I generally am bringing most of my protein with me. So there's a lot of tempeh, a lot of tofu. I also like mock meats when I was eating meat. I loved meat. Oh my God. I was the greatest lover of meat. So it's really interesting for me to be vegan. Uh, It's been about four and a half years. And the reason why I became vegan was because my daughter, the lovely Lily, who you had a chance to meet, came home one summer when she was 16. And she said, I'm not going to kill any more animals. I'm not killing the environment. I'm going vegan. Watch this movie. And the movie was what the health and you decide. Now, I am a huge meat eater. And I also didn't want to know this information because I didn't feel like changing anything. But I thought, you know what, if this is important to Lily, and it's actually a good thing that she wants to save the environment and save the animals and be a more ethically thoughtful person. And it's also going to be her world. I'm only going to be around another 20, 30, maybe 40 years at the most but she's going to be around a lot longer. So if this is the way she feels like her world, is going to become a better place, a more sustainable place, a place where people can live um, comfortably and healthy, then I had to try it. And I watched what the health. And sometimes when you see things, you can't unsee them. And I saw the way in which it affected people's health, the way it affected the environment, the way it affected animals. And I said, okay, we're going vegan. And I told Ted that, and he was not pleased with that because at this point we were already kosher and it was more than enough for him. And then we started eating more vegetarian and fish and he was really not happy about that, but he came along too and we went vegan and we've been vegan ever since. So we've been like the overnight vegan. You know, some people kind of ease their way into veganism. That did not happen in our family. We were not vegan one day and the next day we were vegan. And we've been doing that since. So it's been interesting being in Nome as a vegan and then really thinking about the native Alaskans who live here that actually get most of the most nutritious food from subsistence hunting. So they are eating mostly sea mammals and fish. They're hunting caribou, doing all kinds of things. And I had to kind of negotiate my thinking and feeling about all this. And as a doctor, knowing that this is the best food that they actually take in. So that was just really interesting to be flexible and to think about things flexibly and to think about what is best for the people at this moment, and then how to somehow make things better. Because everything else that they eat that comes from the mainland, comes from Nome, especially in my fishing village, is all crap. Mostly high refined carbohydrates, salt and sugar. It is the crappiest crap, crap, crap. And so my patients are sick. You know, they're, they're less sick from their subsistence food that they've been eating for the last 10,000 years, but they are more sick from the crap that we bring in. So now I'm trying to think about, well, what do I bring in? And I'm thinking about vertical farming. I'm thinking about indoor farming, like ways in which to at least get greens in. So not only do I have to get the greens into you know, the fishing village, which has no running water. So we'll have to figure that out. 
but I also have to get them to actually buy on to the idea that eating greens would be really great for them because having all the sugar and the refined carbohydrates, I say their taste buds have been hijacked. So now they have no taste for vegetables. They're not interested in it. They can't imagine why they would want it. They can't envision that there's some good way to eat it. So that's going to be part of the thinking too. Like, how do you get people to buy on to the idea that their health is really important, that their life is important, that what they put in their body, the good fuel will actually make it run better for years and years to come without as much sickness. And that's what I'm working on. So there are so many things going on and that's what I'm doing here in Alaska. My son, Adam, as you know, went to Bogota, Colombia. I dropped him off at the airport and he's teaching English to young students in a town outside of Bogota. My daughter's back in school. My husband is back in New York and here I am. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about gaslighting. And I'm saying the word gaslighting because I think we know what that means, but the way in which we gaslight children, and I'm just gonna relay a little story to you. We went to Florida. Oh, by the way, I had COVID. And uh, it was really interesting watching myself kind of go through it and know that I was going to be okay and not fight it. But we went to Florida and visited some relatives and I love these relatives. And one of my nephews has a four-year-old son who is fun and lovely and wonderful. And we were at another nephew's house and they have a dog, small little chihuahua puppy, little bit yappy, very, very mouthy, meaning that this dog was teething over all of us, over me, over my nephew's son, who's four years old. And so my nephew's son was very upset because he said the dog bit him. Now the dog did actually bite him. Now it wasn't a bite that broke skin. It wasn't a bite that drew blood. It might not have been a bite that hurt that much. But the truth was, is that he was bit by this dog. I was bit by this dog, but it didn't bother me. And so he got very upset and he started to cry. And he went to his dad and he said, I got bit. And his dad said, no, you didn't. But he did. Maybe it wasn't a bite that he perceived as a bite, but we have no idea how a four-year-old processes whatever a dog is doing with its mouth on your skin, chomping down. He didn't draw blood. It wasn't a puncture wound, but it was definitely a bite. And so I was thinking about that idea where we tell kids that they're either not feeling what they're feeling or they're feeling it more acutely or more sensitively than they should, or when they fall down that they didn't get hurt or that the dog didn't bite them. And this is a form of gaslighting where we tell something that they're perceiving something that someone has experienced that they haven't experienced it, that what they perceived and experienced isn't real. And I think we do that for the best of reasons because it's hard for us to watch our kids have a hard time. It's hard for us to watch our kids be in pain. And the idea is that if we stop the crying or we make them believe it didn't happen that way, the pain will go away. 
But the truth is, is that the pain gets laid in there and then attached to other things. So now he's got this bite that happened. And then he has this idea that nobody believes me. And so when you continue to somehow tell a young person that what they experience isn't real, even if it's not the way we experience it, eventually it gets attached to this idea that nobody listens, possibly nobody cares. And then that is your mantra as you grow up and go through life. So why is it so hard for us to just listen? Probably because nobody listened to us. And so we don't have a model in doing that. And again, our confused ideas about if we stop the crying, if we stop the upset, if we stop the complaining about it, if we tell them it doesn't happen or it didn't happen, that the hurt will go away. So there are many, many good reasons why we do this. But I think the more important thing is to shore ourselves up enough so that we can handle when our kids come to us with whatever big feelings they have for whatever reasons they have them. And we are not ones to judge whether they should be having those feelings or not. Can you imagine if I fell on the floor and somebody said, you're okay? And I was like, no, I fucking hurt my knee. I couldn't even imagine that somebody would say that to me. Yet we do say that to young people all the time, that something did not happen, that their experience of it is not real and not true. So what I want you to do is to allow them to have that experience with it and just listen. And then say, what else? And continue to listen. Now, while you're listening, what I want you to remember and realize is that it's not your pain. It's their pain. They don't have to stop reacting the way they stop reacting so that we feel okay. Because most of the time, we want them to do whatever it is we want them to do because we don't want to feel bad. And maybe we've got a side effect of stopping them from feeling bad. But as we clearly have learned, it does not stop them from feeling bad. So we have to realize that whatever their experience of it is, is not our experience and not to take it on as our experience. And then be curious about what the underpinning is of whatever's going on. Often my children would have big, big crying sessions over things that seemed very, very small, minute to me. And especially if we had a good day. I would sit around thinking, oh my God, they're so unappreciative. Look, I got them five of these and they want 10 of these. But really what was going on is that they still feel like they have no autonomy over whatever is happening in their lives. They still do not get the final decision about what is bought for them or what they eat or where they go. And so they are trying to figure this out as best they can. So if we can, even for a minute, and again, you don't have to do this all the time, just once in a while, continue to ask, what else is going on for you? Tell me about that. Tell me what it was like to be bitten by that dog. Tell me exactly how that feels. And be curious. And then also be empathetic empathetic in that way that this is a young person who you love so much and want things to go well for. 
and just continue to listen. And I promise you, very soon after, once your young person is listened to, they will be on to the next thing. They will feel completely listened to and move on. Now, if they don't, that doesn't mean it hasn't worked. It just means they're still working on something. And it might also mean that they feel like they hadn't been listened to for so long that maybe they have to get used to or test the listening over and over again until that becomes the default. But again, it's no skin off your back to just stay and to listen and not take on their hurt as your own and not necessarily try to make it better. Now, remember, if they are able to process their feelings, if they're able to work through something and get to the other side, that's what we call resilience. That's what we call bouncing back. So what we do by gaslighting or stopping whatever it is that they are thinking and feeling at the moment in order to feel better and make us feel better is you are prolonging whatever the hurt is, and it will come out in some other way. So pain now or pain later, and I go for the pain now. Go for the pain now. Because if you don't, if you don't go for working on the pain, and when I'm talking about working on it, I'm talking about allowing it, feeling it fully, processing through without anything to distract you from it. If we don't do it then, it will come out later in weird and more difficult ways. So that is what I got for you today. Stay, listen, believe, continue to be curious, be empathetic, and be kind to yourself. All right, guys. So I want you to know that I am doing a three-month coaching practice. I will be coaching 10 people for three months. They'll have entrance into my six steps to stop worrying. You'll get all the tools you'll need to learn the method that I've been working on for the last, it's really been like 30 years, if not more, in order to stop worrying because worry is really that thing we do that keeps our lives small, keeps our life without joy and keeps our life with fear. And it not only keeps our lives that way, but our children's lives become that way. They end up believing that the world is a dangerous place and that they cannot be trusted in it. So we don't actually keep them safe because they do not want to manage our worry. They're not going to sit around trying to make us feel better. And what they'll do is they'll decide to not tell us. They'll go out and do other things, meet other people, buffer and distract themselves in other ways, do drugs, whatever it is. But whatever will happen, your worry actually creates a lack of safety for the family. And it's only through actually not worrying, but being able to think and come up with ideas and listen and not react that your family will be safe. So I'm opening up this coaching program. The reason why I'm doing three months is because we've been so used to worrying that it's become part of our default. We've become so good at it. We are excellent warriors and we need to practice the skill and the art of not worrying, of allowing, of listening, of being curious, of discerning. I only have room for 10 people in this program because I'm working in Alaska, I'm working 10 hours a day, I'm back and forth. But for those 10 people, I wanna offer this program and then everyone else can get on the wait list. 
Like I said, you'll have entrance into the six steps to stop worrying, and then we will practice it and we'll learn it. And you will be a person that will not worry, but will rather have a big, joyous, fun, connected, and safe life. All right. Go to drnikkinaridan.com, go to the show notes and get all the information. I love you all. And I'll see you next week because I am just committed to staying here with you all. Bye.